Watch this immediately. Watch this immediately. That's right, America. It is another episode of Watch This Immediately, the podcast where we, your hosts, poke fun at our pop cultural inadequacies. Me, I'm one of those hosts. My name is Stephen Krause, but who's that guy over there? The guy that all the ladies call the cappuccino dream. <laughs> Lanier here. Yes. And this time we are discussing a classic of American hip-hop, Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Yes, sir. And you know what? I had never heard this album before. This yeah. album is my shame. <clears throat> I had heard this, uh, you know, back back shortly after it came out. Because I was, I was in, you know, a young ninth grader at the time, and, uh, you know, at that point I was super into hip-hop, and, you know, this was like the, the album of the day. So it was, I remember I would hear tracks from this album, because I, I specifically remember a Nothing But a G thing. Oh yeah, that was big. Um, I saw the video for that on MTV, mm-hmm. and I remember hearing it in uh, Ben Walshower's car, because the, the man was kind enough to give me a ride home from high school several days. Um, and so I would hear tracks from this and an Ice Cube album that we are probably going to cover at some point. Death Certificate. That would be the one that had the uh, the lifestyles of the rich and famous yes. thing that I still have not checked up on. Robin Lynch. I'm going to wait until we ever until we finally. I'm assuming we'll listen to that at some point. Okay. Okay. I mean, if, if, is, is it worth it? That's the question. Oh yeah, Death, Death Certificate is all is um, very divisive, mm-hmm. but we'll get to that. Okay. But uh, yeah, so I, I remember tracks from that, and I remember tracks from this album and Cypress Hill. Um, Black Sunday, probably. Whichever one had the um, Insane in the Brain. Yep, that's Black Sunday. Yeah, so um, so yeah, I, I had actually heard a couple of songs from this before. I had never heard of the album. It looms large in the public consciousness, but I had never gotten around to it. Because for me, hip-hop apparently just ceased to exist from, like... With the Furious Five. <laughs> Sugar Hill Gang yeah. achieved perfection the first time out. And when you're done in one, you don't have to listen to yeah. it. Um, no, I think around the time of Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Black. Oh, yeah. Like, pretty much everything after that, I'm like, I don't need to listen to anything more. That was also a uh, landmark album. I actually um, put a copy of that tape into a time capsule <laughs> at my middle school. I'm not, I'm not sure when they're going to take that thing out or if they already have. Because it's now been about 31 years since since uh, I, I put that tape in there. So God, we need to follow up on this. We I know, need to right? know if your copy of Apocalypse 91 <laughs> has been retrieved. I mean, it, it, it would have been like within the earth for 20 plus years. So I don't know. So it's probably fine. I mean, that's a... That's it's, a climate-controlled environment. It's a, it's a cool, dark place. Okay. Yeah. So that's legit. the equivalent of putting it in a cave. Okay. Legit. Legit. So it's fine. It's it's fine. They have no way to play it because it's a cassette, but... Yeah, yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah. Cassettes would be the obsolete medium <laughs> that they've become. Well, and, I mean, CDs really, too, to a large extent. Yeah, but if you've got a DVD or a Blu-ray player in your Fair. home still, then you can still play a CD. And ironically, uh, vinyl is back yeah, even I've, more so than cassettes. I have bought 
probably five or six vinyl records over the last year. I have purchased one CD in the last three years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I have not listened to that CD ever. What CD is it, by the way? Uh, S&M 2 by Metallica. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. I think I even I have all the songs on my phone. I've never listened to it. <laughs> <laughs> you just needed uh, James Hetfield's um, new Lamborghini to be partially yours. Yes, I want to feel ownership in all of the things that they own. Yeah, nice. To be honest, I I loved the first one. Okay, and so they they did a second one. And I was like, I want to hear it. Yeah, and but, so you know we're 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 going to talk some Metallica in a little bit here. Yeah, on another episode we'll be talking Metallica, but sure. this is all about the Chronic, Doctor Dre. Okay. Take me through it. Okay, so at the time this album was made, um, which was when? What year are we talking? Uh, Nineteen ninety-two. And so you got to go back to NWA. NWA they came out, I believe, in eighty-eight with their first album, mm-hmm. and then um, I think the second one was eighty-nine, and then the. The last album, which was without Ice Cube, because uh, for all of you who have seen Straight Outta Compton, you know Ice Cube left because of a contract dispute. Um, that was the last NWA album, and so after that, now this was the Ninjas for Life. Yes, LP. Yes. Okay. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and that, that word Ninjas is it's something I just heard about, but I'm like, yeah, you know, I can say that. It's it's all I got. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, you know, at that point, NWA broke up, and Dr. Dre was kind of at a, at a loss as to what to do. In comes uh, Suge Knight, a large, menacing ex-bodyguard football player. And did he just pick him up and dangle him out of a balcony? Oh, no, that was just vanilla. That was, no, just, I, that I, was just for the honkies. I want to believe that he did that to every single person he ever dealt with. That was like it's, his equivalent of giving someone a bear hug. It's not. just like picking somebody up and dangling them out of a balcony. It's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility, for sure, because Suge Knight was, he, he operated on fear. You've got enough money now, you can do that. That could be your thing. I mean, just like walking up to people and being like, hey, hey, and then hanging them out of the, shaking the change out of their pockets. I could. You got to be nice about it, though. You got to be like, what's your phone look like? Thinking of getting a new phone. Yeah. And then when they give you their phone, you set the phone aside and then you pick them up and dangle them out the window. (laughs) So that way they're not losing their phone. Exactly. I'll be like, hey, man, this is a Galaxy S22. It's, you know, I I don't want anything to happen to it. Yeah. You, I could give it. (laughs) You need to die. Yeah. Your organs need to be splattered on the streets. <laughs> but the Galaxy S22 is a thing of beauty. Exactly. So, yeah, Suge Knight, uh, he, he basically, him and Dr. Dre started Death Row. And at that point, you know, Do- Dr. Dre was trying to find new talent, I believe. So he had already had a protege named the DOC that he wanted to um, bring to Death Row. Mm-hmm. However... DOC was in a bad car crash. And so do you remember the $20 sack pyramid? Yes. That really raspy voice? Mm-hmm. That was what the DOC's voice sounded like after the accident. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay, that's bad for a rapper. Yeah. He did not rap again. Wow. But, you know, Dr. Dre was able to find a young uh, rapper named Snoop, Doggy Dog. So... Before they actually released Chronic, they released a song on the soundtrack for the movie Deep Cover, and it was the title track. And great song. 
but that's what brought Snoop into the national consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Dre was like, you know what? I'm not actually a rapper. I'm more of a producer. And it's well known that people go straight for Dr. Dre. Mm-hmm. And I believe Snoop probably wrote a lot of his rhymes for The Chronic. But So is this a de facto Snoop Doggy Dog album? He's all over yeah. this album. I would say I would say yes. That and well, and there's also um, some some appearances from the Dog Pound, which is Daz and Corrupt, and then the Lady Rage. I think there are a couple of posse tracks that they're on, and uh, RBX as well. He was another Death Row rapper, but he never quite made it. Although I don't know why. Like he had a he had a good flow. He had a nice voice, and you know he he rhymed pretty well, but. That's the the vagaries of music, I guess. And so, yeah, like Dr. Dre, he made this album and released it upon the world, and nothing but G thing became a huge phenomenon. And uh, yeah, like for me personally, I had the tape, and I <laughs> that's the nineties thing I can imagine. Yeah, man. Saying. Yeah, man. I, I had the tape. I I, I was listening. I used that to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, I used to listen to it on the bus. It was wonderful. Now, that was my centering activity in the morning on the way to junior high. Like, just yeah. put on the headphones and completely tune everyone else out while oh, I yeah. listen to, to my music. To and from, bro. Got to. And uh, so, so, I know you had some thoughts about this versus All Eyes on Me. I do. I do. First of all, I want to say that this album has one of my favorite things in the whole world, which is rappers being in effect. <laughs> yes. This might be the last album, or the, at least the most recent album, because I don't want to say it's the last, but this might be the most recent album where they were in effect. Yes. Because I'm, I'm very happy to say that Snoop Dogg notes that Death Row Records is in full physics. Yes. <laughs> so it's a variation, but I'm still counting it. <laughs> in effect. Couldn't be happier about that. Um... This album is of a of a piece with the other album that we're going to be talking about tonight on a separate episode, Metallica's Master of Puppets. And the the reason that it's of a piece is just because I suggested this one to you and you suggested this one to me. Correct. But they will forever be linked in my mind because of what we're talking about here. And we listened to All Eyes on Me, and I'm still kind of mad about that. <laughs> I actually get a little bit more angry every time I think about it. Uh, because of your doctrine of I don't want us to have to spend any more than 45 minutes on prep time. And then without a trace of irony, you gave me a two-hour and 15-minute album to listen to that is poor, just piss poor. Sorry. But uh, there is a... This album, The Chronic, since I'm not here to bury all eyes on me anymore, um, but The Chronic has something in common with Master of Puppets, and this might be the only way in which these two albums are linked, but um, All Eyes on Me is an album of arrogance. Arrogance is the primary driving force of that album. Um, The Chronic and Master of Puppets are albums about confidence. Um, These albums are people who have 
know-how, they have drive, they know exactly what they're doing, what they're saying, where they're putting every note, and it doesn't feel forced, it doesn't feel half-assed in any way, it doesn't feel like they have anything to prove because they're just out here proving it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, this album, um, and I, that, I feel that in Master of Puppets too, and the the counter to each of these albums, I would say, are All Eyes on Me, which is an album that's very arrogant. It's very um, petty. Well, it's not. It's not petty. Well, um, I mean, it is kind of. There, there is a well, hit 'em up. The single that came out around the same time as as uh, All Eyes on Me is is very petty. Well, with the chronic, there, there's also some pettiness in the chronic. Oh, but, for uh, sure, for sure. Uh, but it's very, it's very arrogant in its posturing and. A similar album from the rock spectrum would be Appetite for Destruction from Guns N' Roses. That's a very arrogant album. Um, And so there's nothing wrong with either of those two, because especially when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, when I, I, let's see, I was in grade school when I heard Guns N' Roses for the first time, and um, I would have been in high school when when these albums came out. Arrogance is a perfectly viable substitute for confidence, because you have no confidence at that age. Because people, it can be... It can be passed off as confidence to people of limited intellectual means. Exactly. 100%. And so that's why I think All Eyes on Me, among its other failings, that's why it doesn't appeal to me at this age, because it's a very, it's an album of arrogance. Um, whereas this never felt like it was trying to prove anything to me. It just comes in, it is, um, it is misogynistic, it is petty in ways that junior high school girls aspire to (laughs) and it is super fun from front to back and I enjoyed this album immensely the songs are creative the beats um, feel like they're taking you someplace and that's something that I I absolutely loved that I found trying on All Eyes on Me because All Eyes on Me was like okay here I hit play and we're gonna ride this same fucking beat for the next seven minutes and the last two minutes of that are not gonna have any rapping to them yeah we're just it's just gonna be us sitting here being like yeah that's right that's how we do things in Cali so I, I I do have something to add here yes now um one thing that's somewhat stark is the production on Ninjas for Life is very bombastic. Like it's it's very much like a lot of crashing and and just uh, a cacophonous sound. <laughs> this album, I think you will agree, has a very smooth sound. Definitely. Now, uh, Jerry Heller, who was the um, guy who you know was the ma- the main bad guy in Strata Compton played by Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti yes. Yeah. So he has claimed for many years that uh, this 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 uh, rapper on the group Above the Law Dr. Dre worked on Above the Law's album because he was, you know, he was with Jerry Heller at the time. Mm. And so Jerry Heller and um, I can't remember the name of the guy on Above the Law. They both claim that Dre has appropriated the style of the dude from above the law. Because if you look at the last NWA album's production and the production here, they really don't sound anything... They they don't have a lot in common. You listen to this album and you listen to Above the Law's 1991 album, and there are definite thematic overlaps. 
So whether Dr. Dre was simply inspired or he was, quote, biting the above-the-law dude style remains to be seen, but there is evidence that if Dr. Dre wasn't uh, wholesale taking that dude's style, he at least was heavily inspired by it. Well, there is that saying, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Yeah, yeah. Most people could at least tell you who Dr. Dre is. Yes. Most people would tell you Above the Law is a Steven Seagal movie. (laughs) They've got some bangers, man. But if you walk up to a person on the street, you ask who Dr. Dre is. Fair. They're going to know. Fair. If you you walk up to a person and say, what do you think of when I say Above the Law? They're going to say it was better than Hard to Kill. (laughs) But not as good as Out for Justice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, so, maybe yeah. that's just because we're in the Midwest and Steven Seagal has a bigger following than the rapper Above the Law. But Well, it was a group, but I, I, so I the, can't... The rap group. I cannot remember the name of the guy, but... The rapists Above the Law. He was the main producer and one of the rappers on, on, of the group. But as I said... I, I have listened to the Above the Law album from 1991, and so that was released right before this, right before Dr. Dre left Jerry Heller's, not employ, but partnership. Mm-hmm. Definite overlap. Well, and that, there is room for inspiration. That is what music is about, and that's mm-hmm. what art is about. You have the ability to change what you're doing at any given time, and you can do that based on on the concept of, holy shit, I just heard this new thing. Yep. I didn't even know that I could do that. I bet I can do that. Mm-hmm. Why don't I do that? Well, Dr. Dre is well known as a, quite a perfectionist in the studio, mm-hmm. and he has one of the best ears in the business. You know, And just judging by the Super Bowl show from this past year, you know, he's just had hit after hit after hit. And he's he's made, he's kept it going for the better part of thirty years now. So I, I would say that even if he had never worked on the Above the Law album, he probably would have come across some facsimile of the sound at some point. Also, he was probably just looking for change after um, you said three albums with NWA. Yeah. So he's probably you're prime at you're primed at that point to do something different with your style with your art. And so a shift was probably coming either way. Above the law can just be looked at as an influencing factor in that. Yeah, I, I think so. I don't feel like he's I don't feel like he stole anything unless he specifically took beats that they had created, you know, took no. backing tracks that they had made for their own stuff. No, no, they did not. Then that's insane. It's as you know, the, the the allegations of biting my style is they've been out there for years. Okay. <laughs> Fine. So tell me about uh, about your your thoughts on specific songs, tracks, things of that nature. Um, what are the tracks? Good pot. <laughs> God damn it! There's a long Wikipedia entry for this. What a, so what great podcasting we're doing here. Fuck with Dre Day. Yes, was an absolute classic, absolute yes. banger. Yes. Um, as was Let Me Ride. Oh, hey man, I gotta send you the Let Me Ride remix. All right, it's uh, it's so good, and Snoop has one of the best verses of his career in that. I, I should have sent it to you before. I don't know why I didn't. Yeah, let me let me hear that. Um, the day that ninjas took over, 
I believe that is the song that has uh, that essentially has people saying, "Greg, I'm awesome." Yeah, <laughs> which is great because you want Greg to know that you're feeling good about yourself. Yeah, yeah. So, now we're getting into ratatat tat. Yes. Um, I don't have any notes with me, but this I, is where, I enjoyed the hell out of ratatat. This is where it gets a little more nihilistic, one would say. Well, yeah, and then. It's still, it never stopped being a good time, though, even though it does, especially further on in the album, it does really get kind of grim. Yeah. Um, but. Little Ghetto Boy. That's a solid song. And I Look. I don't want to enjoy Bitches Ain't Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very bad for enjoying Bitches Ain't Shit. But that is another song that I remember riding in Ben Walshire's car. It's a great beat, bro. To it. And it's it's just it's a fun song. I don't have to agree with the politics of it. I'm never gonna sing it. But when I when it came on as I was um, building some Lego stuff, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this song. Mm. Brought back some high school memories driving through Topeka trying to find the camera. <laughs> There was a pasture somewhere in suburban Topeka where there was a camel. <laughs> really? So I'd go out and see the camel. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, there was a camel, and then there was an emu farm over by where I used to live. Emus? Huh. Yeah. Okay. I'm assuming meat. They were meat emus. Wow. Huh. Probably tastes like chicken, I would assume. I don't know. I thought it was red meat. That's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, Snoop Doggy Dog all over this album. And I'm not mad about that. Mm. Um, I had forgotten just how much I enjoy his laconic style. Yes. Um, it was a nice uh, nice counterpoint to uh, to Tupac. It's There's very, nothing laconic about Tupac. No, nothing at all. And just, uh, you, you just feel like you're getting... Do you feel like people are getting roasted by a, a stoner friend? Yeah. When you're listening to Snoop Doggy Dog. But but here's the thing, a little ghetto boy. Snoop Doggy Dog, when this album was rated, was 18 years old. That's shocking. He's talking about he spent four years in the county. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> what are you talking about? You've not been in jail for four years. You were in high school with Cameron Diaz. You gotta make your myth, man. I guess so. It's like Akon where he he claimed like he was in jail for three years, but he just put together a bunch of like smaller sentences. Maybe he, he spent four years at the county rec center doing a macrame class. Okay. I could see that. Yep. But I mean, he did claim that there were, he spent four years in the county with nothing but convicts around me. Have you ever been to the community rec center? Okay, fair. Fair point. Could have been macrame. You're right. You, in Topeka, you would be doing macrame with convicts. <laughs> Because it is technically very far away from the school. Wow. So you can get you can deal drugs there, you can molest children, you're not gonna get in the same kind of trouble you're gonna oh, get no. further in town. Oh no. Topeka was rough, man, those were mean streets. But uh, yeah, I would say, you know, now that I think about it, this album came out at a time when high school was still kind of okay. Yeah. As opposed to the hellhole I became toward the end. Yeah, man. It, oh. did, it wasn't great. Oh, okay. Sorry. 10th and 11th grade were not great. Sorry. But but then you were a senior. You were in charge of everything. You were king shit of Fuck Mountain. Yeah, I guess so. I was... Yeah. 
Yeah, you've ruled with an iron fist and a velvet glove. <laughs> I, uh, I do find the Doggy Style album by Snoop does have a bit of a bleaker worldview. Mm-hmm. This one is more just, hey, man, we're having fun. We're in California. The weather's great. There's a, a feeling here of, of freedom. Yes. At, which probably owes a li- at least a little something to being outside of the, the Ruthless Records Correct. NWA sphere. Correct. And just like, I can do whatever the hell I want now, so let's have a good time. And, you know, to be fair, when Doggy Style came out, or was about to come out, Snoop was battling a murder charge. And so he was under the, he was under the real threat of like having to spend a ton of time in prison. So I get it, but this was Snoop at his most un, at least in his youth, his most unhurried and most free. Did he commit murder? You know, I've read the accounts. He did cause someone to die. (laughs) Which does not necessarily mean murder. The fact of whether it was premeditated still, still out. The jury's still out on that one. I mean, they're no, not out anymore. Not. <laughs> they acquitted him, but you know he's. So, and that's the thing about it, right? Back in 1993, I think it was. There was I remember a cover of like Time Magazine where Snoop is looking very like, like thuggish, man. He's. You know he's he's just like scowling at the at the camera, mm-hmm. and it's saying like you know. Some some sensationalist headline like, you know, rap is going to kill all of us or you know, something like that. <laughs> and you see him now. Like I, I was watching um, that this show that's called Celebrity IOU with the Property Brothers, mm-hmm. and Snoop was on that show redoing his friend's house. Yeah, he's like America's neighbor now. Exactly. But then I mean, if you if you even listen to his music from like let's say twenty ten. So a full 20 years after this period of his life, he had a song on, on an album called Control Your Ho. <laughs> and another song called Wasn't Your Fault, where he talks about how, you know, you just made me mad, so I had to beat you up to a lady. <laughs> and so I don't know why he gets like such a pass, but, but you know, his a lot of his lyrics are the exact thing that the moral majority would argue is is all that is wrong with rap. It's all about creating an image, which he has successfully done. Yeah, yeah, he's cuddly Uncle Snoop, who also, by the way, um, traffics women and smokes weed all day. Hey, man, if you can do it, he can do it. Correct, correct. And, you know, I would say that, and, and I, we're not going to listen to any of these albums, probably. Oh, we may listen to 2001, but we'll, we'll see. But, you know, there was a period of time, so after this album came out, Doggy Style came out, and that was kind of when Death Row Records started going down the tubes. <laughs> so after Doggy Style, this was in 1997, I want to say, Snoop's second album, The Dogfather, came out. That was only his second album? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. And and then after that, there was a period of time when Death Row and Snoop were not on good terms, and he was essentially in limbo. <laughs> and I think it was like 99 when he finally was able to break free and go to No Limit Records. And 
so yeah, you know, for what three years of his prime, as it were, he didn't really release anything, and he really wasn't on any music. I mean, can you really? The cultural impact of Doggy Style is not a question. But, I mean, does he really have any essential albums aside from Doggy Style? Be honest. Not, not really. I mean, one would say that uh, whatever album Drop It Like It's Hot is on is maybe good, but no, nothing that's... But you said whatever album that's on, so yeah. you, that tells me it's not essential. Right. It's, no, this, I think Doggy Style was his only essential album. <laughs> Everything else is more just, hey, look at this awesome guy. He's funny, but he's also very menacing. That just makes me wonder. There is something to be said for striking while the iron is hot, and if you don't have the ability to do that... Well, you know, he also had this weird, like, detour into reggae and gospel. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, he became Snoop Lion for a little while. Oh, shit, Snoop Lion. Yeah. I forgot. He also stopped... He also tried to stop smoking weed, but, I mean, come on. Come on. The, the, we all knew that wasn't going to last. I, I thought I was going to start breathing water for a while. That's like that's like can't do that. That's like when your crackhead cousin is holding a lit crack pipe, and he's like, "You know, I'm trying to give up. Got to cut down on the crack." Yeah, I feel like I could stop the crack. Yeah, you know, I mean, oh, the crackling sound. Okay, hold on, I got, I got to, I got to take care of this. Hang on, <laughs> I'm just going to go around the corner real quick, and then I'm going to stop smoking crack. Yeah, <laughs> be right back. <laughs> Yeah, so overall, I would say, uh, what, do you, what do you think? What are your final thoughts? This album is a banger from start to finish. It is. This is everything that All Eyes on Me was. And I know it's not exactly fair to compare these two albums by two very different artists, but because you forced me to listen to All Eyes on Me, and I hate you for that. <laughs> Sorry. And I will dance on your grave. And every year after you die, if you go before I do, I am going to exhume your body and just dump it out of the coffin by the side of the grave. Wait, what? This is sounds pretty bad, man. What you did to me is really bad. Sorry. You deserve this. Sorry. Every year when you die, your corpse will be desecrated. <laughs> and they're going to have to spend the money and time to put you back in the coffin, put you back in the ground, and then the next year I'm just going to do it again. You know, you, you did give me some great advice once. Really? That, that terrible project I was on at work in 2019. Mm-hmm. I think you advised me that I, sh- I should start sending Christmas cards to any everyone on that project who caused it to be bad, saying, I'll be glad when you're dead. That is something that I would advise. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I, I, I'll probably start doing that. You should do that. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yes, this makes up for that. Okay. Okay. Wait, let me let me clarify. This makes up for an hour of that. Okay. It's an hour long album. You still owe me an hour and fifteen minutes of my life. I may be able to give that to you with the Dr. Dre two thousand one. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Remains we remains to be seen. TBD. Yes. But this album, classic, Stone Cold classic from top to bottom. Correct. This was enjoyable. The music has movement. Um, a good song, in my opinion, is a song where you feel, even as you're sitting, if, if you're just sitting in your chair, you feel like you're being taken somewhere. You feel like you are, um, a sense of almost physical movement with it. Ooh. And so many of the songs on this album have that. Um, the flow, everybody's got a good flow. There's nobody who just makes me think, God, stop talking for the <laughs> love of God. I hate you. Get out of my life. Um, which happened a few times on All Eyes on Me. Um, the beats 
are inventive. They are. Um, Dre is not afraid to shake things up yes, on occasion, correct. which is important to keep me engaged anyway in hip hop. I can't just have, you know, let's put on the loop and we're done. I can't have that. I think it's a mark of a great producer to keep things fresh and to keep things moving, to keep things changing. And yep. he does that in so many of the songs on here. There are a couple of songs that are a little bit stayed in their beats, but, you know, everything can't be perfect. Correct. Um, but this album was amazing. This, I loved it. it I'm great. glad that uh, I'm glad I was able to bring this to your life. Yeah, me too. Okay, thank you. You're most welcome, sir. You did a good service. Thank you. Thank You're you. a good friend and a better person. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So, uh, what's what's next for us? What's next? Um, in the listening order, I have no idea. But if we're doing these, if we're putting these out in the order that we're making them, you need to listen to "Master of Puppets" by Metallica. Okay. Okay, but did we say that already at the end of uh, All Eyes Are on All Eyes on Me? I believe we did. Okay, so you've listened to Master of Puppets. I have listened to Master of Puppets. So what next is you and I? We both now serve the trucking industry. Yes, yes, we do. So I've got an idea. Okay. In okay. 1977, a huge movie came out. <gasps> yes. It was a movie that people all over America flocked to see. Yes. And it revolutionized filmmaking in the United States and even throughout the world. And that movie was the second highest grossing movie of the year. Ooh. It was Smokey and the Bandit. Fantastic. And I have I have only the vaguest memory of seeing it. Second highest grossing movie of 1977, only behind Star Wars. It is known by some people as Redneck Star Wars. Since we both serve the trucking industry now, I think we owe it to ourselves and the industry that we now serve to see Smokey and the Bandit. I and determine fully agree. Because it's been completely forgotten about, pretty much. I think we need to determine if it should get a renaissance. Okay. I, I fully agree with this. Excellent. Let's do it. All right. So, next time, we will be talking about Smokey and the Bandit. Yes, sir. Everybody watch it. We'll be back here. We'll discuss it. We'll have a good time. Peace. Bye. But wait, there's more. This is still, watch this immediately, I am still one of your hosts, Stephen Krause, and still with me is the man they call the heavy metal miracle. Manir here. And we are not done yet, because we're actually giving you two for one on this episode. We talked so much about Master of Puppets by Metallica in the previous part of this episode, we decided to give you a two for one. We are going to discuss the 1986 thrash metal classic, Metallica's Master of Puppets. And this is one that you are not familiar with. No, not at all. I'm familiar with Metallica. I've actually even been to a Metallica concert. You and I were at the same Metallica concert, in fact. Unbeknownst to us. Yeah, before we reconnected as human beings. We had met before at that point. Yes. And had the the, uh, disastrous viewing of Glitter that I blamed on you for years. You know? So at that that concert at the Sprint Center in Kansas City in uh, 20... 2008, 2009? Yeah, 09, I think. Okay, so 2009, I was probably thinking, this is a much better time than when uh, my girlfriend at the time and I saw Glitter with Muneer. Yeah. <laughs> Glad that guy's not here. Well, and I remember uh, I remember that concert. At some point, there were, like, black balloon or black uh, beach balls that were being tossed about. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty solid. I, I didn't have any of them 
tossed to me. No, we d- it didn't get. We were on the floor for that. It didn't get anywhere near us, though. Yeah, I was. I was up in the rafters or whatever it is. So it was in the middle part of the arena, which was uh, not accessible to either of us. It was still a good show, though. Yeah. So yeah, so, I might still actually even have the CD from there because Metallica, I think, did put out. Um, if you were at the concert, like a recording of the concert. Yeah, they still do that. So you can download, if you were there, you can download the show for free. Or uh, if you weren't at the show, you can pay for it. Mm-hmm. They actually do that. They archive a lot of their material. For all the various problems people have with them, they make a crap ton of their live shows available to people. Yeah. Some for free and some for purchase. So okay. you're going to get, get no Metallica hate from me. I'm right. a huge fan and have been for decades now. And I mean, honestly, it's... I, I don't. I don't disagree with Lars Ulrich's stance on Napster and, play, and things like that. So I don't either. Yeah. So if if you're here for Napster comments, we got none for you. Right. That's not that what this is about. This is about shining the light on our pop cultural inadequacies. Mm. Um, the inadequacy is yours this time. Correct. But we have rectified that. Uh, Master of Puppets, released in 1986 by the band Metallica. Metallica was formed in Los Angeles in the early 80s. Um, the classic lineup that we know and love from this time period was James Hetfield on vocals and lead guitar, Lars Ulrich on drums, Kirk Hammett on lead guitar, and Cliff Burton on bass. This was the last album with Cliff Burton before he died. Um, on the road in Sweden uh, as a result of a tragic bus accident. A bus Tough. fell on him, essentially. Mm. So this is the last album that we get with Cliff Burton. Uh, the band definitely has uh, differences in their sound afterward. Um, Cliff Burton was very much a strong force in their songwriting, and he was the guy in the band that pretty much everyone else in the band admired and to a certain extent wanted to be. Mm. Um it's if if you're ever interested and have freedom in your reading list to such a point, I have a book on the production of this album and the ensuing tour. Oh, um, and yeah. I would be happy to lend it to you. Yes, please. Um, it's uh, in celebration of I think it was the 30th anniversary of it, and. Uh, <clears throat> One of the things that really comes through from the surviving members is that they all essentially looked up to Cliff Burton. Um, and it's easy to see why on this this album. Um, one of his uh, absolute signature pieces is a song called Orion, which oh, is such a great a, song. Yeah, it's an instrumental um, largely helmed by Cliff Burton. Yeah. And um, but it's an album that has his stamp on it from from start to finish. Yeah, like I added Orion to my uh, instrumentals playlist. It's a pretty solid song. It's a very good song. Um, and so this is this is the album that introduced Metallica to the masses. Um, their first album, Kill 'Em All, had generated a lot of uh, a lot of underground buzz. Um, Ride the Lightning. Their second album is famous for having peaked at 100 on the Billboard Top 100 without any sort of... They didn't have a major label deal. Hmm. So that's actually... That was very impressive, um, particularly in 1984, to have that happen. And so Electra Records, a major label, picked it up because it was a no-brainer for them. They feel like this this album already exists and it made it to 100 right. without our aid, so we'll just buy it and, and distribute it here. And uh, Master of Puppets was their first major label album and um, 
went gold upon its initial release. It, uh, in the sound scan era, has achieved uh, six times platinum status, which is not insignificant at all. Um, Their big coup on this album cycle was um, um, an opening slot for Ozzy Osbourne on his Ultimate Sin tour. And at this point in his career, Ozzy Osbourne was very much a kingmaker. Um, his previous tour, I believe, was the tour that Motley Crue opened for him when uh, Motley Crue was uh, pimping Shout at the Devil. Um, so the Motley, or the um, the Ozzy Osbourne tour was a plum spot. And so Metallica got into a much larger audience than they would have gotten into normally. And they didn't exactly, I mean, to a large degree, they were accredited with blowing Ozzy off the stage every night. Interesting. Because um, they were young, they were hungry, um, they were out to really take over the world at that point. And um, Ozzy wasn't biting heads off bats anymore. No, no. This was his, uh, this was his gold sequin jumpsuit period. Uh, take a look uh, when you get an opportunity at uh, um, uh, Ultimate Sin era Ozzy. Wow. It is a All trip. Right. All right. It is an absolute trip. Because this was 1980, or 19, 1986. So this is a time when Van Halen had obviously had a great effect on every element of rock and roll music in America. And so spandex was the rule of the day. Metallica was not playing by those rules, but uh, Ozzy Osbourne, he had to keep it fresh. He had to keep it, uh, had to keep things young. Seeing him in a sequin jumpsuit, that would be, yeah, I'm going to look this up. You really should. That's going to be very disconcerting. It's, uh, it is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. Um, but yeah, this album came out in 1986, recorded in Sweden. Uh, or, I'm sorry, oh, Denmark, Denmark, recorded in Denmark, okay. and uh, a lean 54 minutes as compared to most Metallica albums, which end up being longer. All the Metallica albums after this clock in closer to 80 minutes. Mm. Um, but an album that, in my opinion, has no fat to it. Um, and its cultural impact is not really able to be disputed. Um, the album artwork for it is familiar across the globe. Um, the title song, Master of Puppets, is one of their most familiar. This is something that you hear in stadiums. Um, you know, you go to a sporting event, you will probably hear some of Master of Puppets um, during the, the course of the event. Uh, the song was just recently featured in Stranger Things. Um, one of the characters plays Master of Puppets on the guitar. So... Um, and it is interesting to me that despite the fact that this is arguably their best regarded album, um, with the exception of Battery and Master of Puppets, I have rarely heard any of the rest of these songs live. Mm. Um, I've never heard Disposable Heroes, Leper Messiah, Orion. I've seen them play Damage Incorporated and Sanitarium once. I mean, Orion would be tough to do without Cliff Burton. They have done it once or twice, mm. um, and they, but even that's just within the past couple of years. Gotcha. Um, they never. Uh, they had intended when they would come back through America, you know, headlining probably hockey arenas or whatever after their um, European 
stint in 86, they had intended that they would play that song when they had, you know, a longer headlining spot. And since Cliff Burton died, they just never did it. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you did say that that messed up the band for a while. Yeah. The effects of Cliff Burton's untimely death are far-reaching, and they really... Um, they were back on the road with a new bass player, I think, within five to six weeks of his death. Damn. So they, they had oh. time to bury him, audition new bass players, hire a new bass player, get back out on the road. Um, I mean, did they have some kind of like terrible manager who was putting them through all this? They were young kids who didn't know how to process that kind of grief. Gotcha. And I think at that point they were more thinking of we just started to see something pay off here and we're scared. We're scared of what could happen if we let it die and then we have absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think in light of losing this person that they all admired, they had one thing left, and that was that band. Mm. And so in order to have anything at all to continue for, they had to keep that band together. And so they really didn't even have to deal with that choice until they didn't have anything to fight anymore. You know, when the Black Album came out in 1991, suddenly, I mean, I think that album has sold maybe near 20 million copies. And at that point, you don't... You're, no one's against you anymore. <laughs> and so that was when they kind of had to start slowly facing facts that, oh, okay, no, we're, we're not the underdogs. We're nobody's underdogs anymore. And so we have, we kept this thing alive. We now need to find other things to do with our lives. And then the creeping grief that they never dealt with started to come back and force them to, to deal with how they moved on after Cliff Burton died, how they treated his replacement, Jason Newstead. Um, oh, yeah, I've heard this name. Yeah, he was in the band for 11 years after Cliff Burton died. He never really felt like a full member of the band. Um, they picked on him a lot, and they took out a lot of their grief on him. <gasps> um, Tough. Yeah. But to make a short story long, Master of Puppets... This is the album that, if you are not a fan of thrash metal, I would ask you to listen to. Mm. Um, and you and I discussed this. <clears throat> well, let's, I mean, for starters, I've done all the talking. This is, this is to be about your experience. The yes, correct. Tell me about what your thoughts are, how you found the music, what you thought of it. You know, this, what you see in front of you, it's not my face. Because my face melted off when I listened to this. I had to, I had to replace my face. Did you find... Now, this opens with a, an acoustic intro. Oh, yeah. Did that lull you into a false sense of security? No, no, no. Because, see, I'm not used to the thrash metal. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it was like, all right, you know, this sounds very thrashy to me. Okay. I'm amped up. I'm ready to go. And... Um, so yeah, then Battery and um, Master of Puppets comes in. But then I felt like the next, uh, the rest of what I now see as being side A is, is very, it's much more melodic and a little softer. I, um, Sanitarium, definitely. Yes. Um, the thing that should not be, I, I would consider that still pretty heavy, although it's definitely yeah, yeah, a sludgier, slower it's, song. It's, it's heavy, 
But yeah, like it's not as fast. Mm-hmm. It's you know a little bit a little bit slower. You know, it's not it's not the frenetic pace. Yeah, it, it lets you kind of appreciate you know the guitar and all that stuff that's being that's being played. And then of course side B Orion is the star of the show. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, you sent me man like uh, the, that YouTube video of of just the bass track. Yes. What's what was your thought on that? Pretty amazing stuff. It's it strikes me as interesting. Cliff Burton was not what you would consider to be a, a typical heavy metal bass player. Um, bass players, a lot of the time, uh, unless you're talking about your like a, a Jaco Pistorius or somebody who can get really crazy thing or um, with what they can do. Um, Bass players are often. Which band is this Pistorius fellow on? Um, he was a kind of a hired gun, but I know he, um, he played on a lot of Joni Mitchell oh, okay. back in the seventies. He was one of those like, if you want the best, you get Jacob Pistorius okay. in like the seventies and eighties. Gotcha. Um, but <clears throat> um, Cliff Burton, the the bass player, is usually kind of tasked, particularly in rock and roll and heavy metal, with holding down what's called the root note of the chord. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the root note is the note that gives the chord its name. And so basically, you hear a lot of heavy metal bass players just being like, doom, 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 mm-hmm. doom, 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 and that's all they're doing. Cliff Burton did not play like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cliff Burton, first of all, he did not use a pick; he used his fingers, and so it gives it kind of a, a popping sound yeah. when he plays. Um, he also would solo, which is, again, not something that you hear much from a bass player, but he soloed like he was playing a six-string guitar. And um, he also played a lot of a lot of treble notes on his bass, which is, is unusual. And there were um, there was the piece on in Orion was the I did not realize that was a bass thing until I yeah. listened to this isolated track. Yeah. And so I wanted you to hear that because I just it speaks to the differing ways in which Cliff Burton thought of his instrument and how he approached it in a different way from how a lot of bass players do. Uh, bass players generally look at it as their ability or as their responsibility to hold down the root of the chord mm-hmm. and keep everything grounded. And Cliff Burton was like, "Fuck it, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing." Yeah. Um, and so the yeah, if you're listening to this, if you're familiar with Orion, or if you've just listened to this album because of this podcast, which would be great. Um, Go and find on YouTube the isolated bass track for Orion and give it a listen to. It's yes. fascinating. Yes, it is. And, man, Cliff Burton is only 24. So, God, like, I wonder when he started because he was very advanced in his techniques. Yeah, and he was interesting in that he had had some music theory training. Oh, really? Yeah, so he was able to explain to the band members, like, okay, this is the time signature that we're using here. He was able to inform them why they were doing some of the things that they were doing. And that was another reason why they looked up to him, is because he understood um, not only the how, but the why of huh. things work. I, I always think it's important to know why things work. Yeah, we focus yeah. so much on how. Um, and But he was able to explain to them certain things about like music theory and like, okay, well, this is, um, you know, these are the the modes of the of the chords. These are, this is how the music is structured. He would play them classical music and be like, okay, this is 
you know, this is really cool. This is really heavy. It's just not heavy in the way you're familiar with. It's not like Motorhead. And so he got them. He introduced a more melodic and a more classical element to their music that separates them from the rest of the big four, which would be Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. Mm-hmm. And so it's a shame that we lost him at such a young age because it would have been fascinating to see what else he could have done. Yeah. Um, but but his work on this album, it really it dominates the album, and I think the album works really well as just a tribute to what Cliff Burton was able to, to accomplish. But that's not to lessen the contributions of everybody else here because everyone is playing um, at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think Master of Puppets is... a fantastic song from beginning to end mm-hmm. um, the melodies present in just in the solos in the musical interludes um, one of the things that really grabbed me about Metallica is you know I think I was I was in junior high it was shortly after the black album came out and I decided uh, well there's something here I want to get into this band I want to hear what it's about and uh, um so I started buying their albums and I think I bought Ride the Lightning first and then I ultimately got a copy of Master of Puppets and it just grabbed me that this was so much more rewarding musically and lyrically than Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him <laughs> and that's not to say anything bad about MC Hammer but you know this this was this was a more rewarding listen to me at the time than a lot of the pop music that was going on because pop music is great I love a good pop song but at that age I was looking for something a little deeper I was looking for something that I could really delve into musically and lyrically and this album really delivers on that I I agree and I I would say that the it's, it's just yeah like I have listened to some thrash metal in the past and it is very non-melodic it is very much just just relentless you know just almost bashing of the instruments and you don't really hear much musicality in it it's almost like you know it would be more more appropriately like experienced in in a live setting yeah, because then you could actually like you know see see other people, see the band, and and then you could get more of an idea of the music. Yeah, but it, yeah. with this one, it was they very much uh, conveyed what the music was about. It's as we were talking about with the Chronic by Dr. Dre. It's a confident album. Mm-hmm. Um, every note is in place. These people know what they're doing. They are not out to prove it because they're just doing it. Yeah. And there's no there's no there's nothing that's missing from this album. There's nothing that you could take away that I think would make it better and there's nothing you could add to it that would make it better. I think this is the the one album in Metallica's discography that you can look at and say they nailed it. Mm-hmm. Cuz all of their other albums, you know, they they arguably get a little bit flabby as they they progress because they they want to put out a lot of music. So you know, as back in the '90s and 2000s, they were like, you know what, these discs will hold 80 minutes. You're going to get 80 minutes of music. Nice. <laughs> Which 
I mean, it's there's value in that. Yeah. Uh, but um, this album, it hits the sweet spot for me. And there are other albums that I will listen to more because I find them compelling in their successes and their failures. Um, but this album, I think, is worthy of being... This is the album that I think is everything that everyone says it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Well, and and the... Just like... It reminds me of Harry Potter in a sense, man. How so? Because you're telling me. The first, like, three albums. Lean to the point. Mm-hmm. Then after that, though, gets a little flabby. <laughs> Same thing with J.K. Rowling, man. First three books, it was like the publisher basically said, all right, we're going to have to edit these things down so that you know children will actually be able to read them. <laughs> and by the end of book three, Prisoner of Azkaban, which I think is actually the best book in the series, um, there were like, J.K. Rowling was like, you can't tell me anything now. And thus started releasing, you know, eight, nine hundred page monstrosities. I still haven't gotten to the end of the last one. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, if you're not being propelled forward by just the anticipation of it having just come out, it's it's a tough read. Yeah, we, we started, um, I don't know if we're using pseudonyms still, Lizette, my girlfriend. Yeah. Um, she, um, she downloaded it on audiobook, and we started listening to it on a road trip to Chicago. Oh yeah, and that only got us like a third of the way through. Oh, dude! Like, I, so J, I, I don't know if it's uh, Jim Dale who's the narrator for all of them, but he did at least do the first like three or four books. He's super good. But yeah, like yeah, except for his Hermione, I fucking hate his Hermione. <laughs> oh, really? Very few of his female characters are that great, but yeah. I especially hate his Hermione. I can I can hear it in my sleep. Yeah, Harry. Yeah, exactly. Harry. <laughs> Harry. <laughs> so bad. I just still remember the fourth book was uh, twenty hours long. And I believe that the, the the you know the final book was actually longer than Goblets of Fire, Gobbler of Fire. I so, think so I could see that being you know twenty one, twenty two, at least. Sounds about right. <laughs> that's that's horrible. So yeah, I could, next time we drive to Chicago, we'll finish it up. I guess. Yeah. Or if you know, I can remember what happened. Or you could just time. be like, you know what? Let's let's drive to uh, let's drive to Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> then we can probably get this whole book in. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've gushed a lot about this album. Um, Battery, Master of Puppets, uh, again, classic songs. The thing that should not be... Um, it's such a simple song, but it's so well executed. Um, Sanitarium, that's another one of those those great songs with wonderful musical interludes, great yes, solos, yes. and the fastest downpicking that I've ever heard in my life. It is impossible to me how fast they they do the downpicking once the speed picks up in that song. Mm. And I've seen them do it live. Mm. Still in their late fifties, they could still they could still downpick that fast, and that's not easy to do. Damn. Um, James Hetfield is famous for how fast he can downpick, and that's that's key for heavy metal guitar playing, mm-hmm. and nobody does it better. Um, Disposable Heroes is one of my favorites. Um, 
this album was smack dab in what they call their CNN years, um, which is where they were just mostly just hanging out watching CNN and writing songs based on huh. on uh, okay. what they saw. And so we've got Disposable Heroes and Leper Messiah speak to that. Well, I mean, I, I guess this was also the beginning of CNN around this time, so mm-hmm. I get it. Yep. And Orion, of course, um, that's top to bottom great instrumental. That is one of the songs, in the rare instance where somebody will tell me that they don't like heavy metal, but they will allow me to play a song for them. This has happened twice in my life. Mm. I have played Orion for them. Um, And gotten a positive response each time. Mm. And uh, Damage Incorporated, as a kid, there is no no finer song (laughs) for a snot-nosed junior high kid than Damage Incorporated. And I was so happy the very first time that I saw Metallica live. Uh, they finished with Damage Incorporated. Fantastic. Um, and I've never heard them play it since. But, where, where, uh, was, where, where, where were you when they played Sandstone Amphitheater. What? Yes. It was, oh, God, it was the second concert that I saw in my life. Um, it was when they were on tour for the Black Album. It was June of 1992. Damn. And it ruined me because they played for, I think, two and at least two and a half, maybe two and three quarters hours. Well, smokes. And I did not realize that most bands only play for about 80 to 90 minutes. Oh, yeah. For so sure. Th- this ruined me to have the second concert of my life be Metallica at the peak of their concert powers um, playing for over two and a half hours. God. And they still, I saw them um, in 2019. Um, at the Sprint Center in Kansas City, they still come out and play forever. They don't. They don't play as long as as that, but they're still good for an hour and forty five, two hours. Yeah, and that's so they still I, kill I, it every night. I've never I seen remember. a bad Metallica show. Yeah, I do remember the Metallica concert I went to. I mean, I didn't have the background of any of the songs, but uh, yeah, I remember that being around two hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I. I love Metallica. Again, um, even Saint Anger, with its famous difficulties, <laughs> I, I, there's no Metallica album that I haven't listened to extensively. Um, so, love this album. It is not. It will not be a mystery what my ultimate ranking of this album will be. But, uh, what are your thoughts? I've, I've I've talked and talked and talked and talked. You've Give gotten most your, of my thoughts, bro. What are your final impressions before we go into rankings? And we'll cover rankings for the Chronic too, because yeah, we, didn't, we yeah. didn't rate the Chronic. I would say that you know you're uh, you're entirely correct. If somebody is sitting around saying I'm not into that metal stuff, make them listen to the or not make them, but you know just say, hey man, open your mind, listen to this Metallica album. Call me in the morning. Let me know what's let me know how you feel. Mm-hmm. And I believe that if they have any musical inclinations or are actual fans of music, they will say, yeah, this is a great, this is a great album. Now it's the the fakers and the haters and the perpetrators who are going to be like, oh man, I can't get past all that fast playing, bro. Those people are, those people are crap. It's called technique. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. So if, if by chance you're listening to this and you're not a fan of heavy metal, Go to YouTube, listen to Orion. Yeah. Give that a shot. Or if you want, there are no lyrics on Orion. If you want lyrics, 
listen to Master of Puppets. Mm. Master of Puppets is a great intro for this era of Metallica for anybody. Yeah, and I still I still remember like I was in the car when I was initially listening to this and. Yeah, man, that Master of Puppets shreds. That's a good driving song. There are plenty yeah, of good driving songs in this album. Oh, yeah. Battery, Master of Puppets, Disposable Heroes, Damage Incorporated. You got yourself a good driving soundtrack. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Whew. All right. So right. so it's time for rankings. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's rank the one we just talked about. Give me your opinion. In the cultural pantheon, mm-hmm. should we discuss what our rankings are? Yes. What are they? <laughs> I'm trying to remember myself. <laughs> Wait a minute. So, the, the bottom is regrettable dalliance. Yes, there's Atari Lynx. Atari Lynx, or the, the beige carpet. So we got at the bottom we have um, regrettable dalliance. We've got beige carpet. Atari Lynx. Atari Lynx. Cultural touchstone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. How did we forget that? This is definitely a cultural touchstone. I agree 100. percent Yes. Now, um, let's continue the the love fest and rank Dr. Dre's The Chronic because we neglected to do that in the first half. I'm going to say cultural touchstone as well. I agree. Hmm. These were two absolute baller albums. You could not find a better way to spend um, for your summer barbecue. Yes. Put these two on your playlist. You're going to have a great night. I mean, play Master of Puppets first. Then when the old squares go to bed, then you can put some Chronic on. Yeah, you're going to... Maybe smoke a little bit, maybe drink a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Start the evening hyped right, and cool it down. Exactly. That's how a good party should go. That's how a good barbecue should be. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I mean, put your grandma away before you play either of these. Let's be honest, your grandma is probably already familiar with Master of Puppets. This album came out 40 years ago. Damn! That's right, you know what? This album is very old. That's what you never realize. You're like, now it's, what, 2022... And yeah, like, it is literally 40 years ago that a lot of, like, the music of our youth came out, because we are 40. Yeah, so the the people who were adults at the time and enjoying it are in their 60s. Wow. And I remember, I mean, my first... My first introduction to Metallica was actually a kid in my grade school who would wear a uh, Damage Incorporated tour shirt. Um, I, huh. I still remember it. You can still see the design. You probably, I mean, at your high school, you probably saw it. Did you go to a junior high? You yeah, were in 89, right? I did. So your junior high and high school, you probably saw people wearing the shirt. It said on the back, it said, honesty is my only excuse. Um, and you um, had, it had like a skull with a spiked club through it. Doesn't ring a bell, but I think maybe I'll look at, I'll look for the shirt. It's, it's one of the, the ones I saw, but as a kid, it intimidated me ah. <laughs> because what the hell was this like eight year old kid doing wearing this Metallica shirt? <laughs> so it's stuck in my mind, that whole damage incorporated tour shirt, that this kid wore cause it scared the hell out of me for years. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this was when I was in grade school and I'm 45 now. Wow. So this album has been around for a long long time yeah your grandma's familiar with it oh my well you know i think tonight we uh had a good old time we did we did we had there was there was no anger like there was with the uh all eyes on me i hate you so much every time i think about it <laughs> it's gonna take a long time to get over oh my get well used to the idea of your corpse just being exhumed and dumped out for no reason <laughs> it's just gonna be unceremoniously dumped on the pile of dirt next to it 
And then the casket, we just chucked over to the other side. So somebody's going to have to get the casket and walk it over to you or vice versa. Wow. All right. After a while, it's, bones are going to start coming loose, and they're just going to be like, get whatever bones you can find. We're just going to put them in order if we can. Okay. All right. I'd say I'm sorry, but you earned it. You deserve this. Hey, man. You know, it's not, not everything Not everything is, is the best. You have to experience the worst to appreciate the best. But that's... Is that what this podcast is about? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Look, it's it's about it's about things that were popular in their day. That's true. I'm gonna, I'm gonna burn you with something. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm wanting to enlighten you to positive things. Look, look, I I, I will try not to have anything else that's terrible. I would like to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> so no, that's not gonna happen. Since we've done a two for one, you know, uh, we did mention. In the earlier episode, the next thing we'll watch, Smokey and the Bandit. Yes. And so I think that the next time we speak, we'll be, uh, perhaps, we'll have our own CB names by then. Oh, yeah. You know. I'm going to get the trucker hat. You got yours. I should have gotten my trucker hat at work. Yeah. If I had been thinking, I would have gotten my trucker trucker hat. My trucker hat is, like, very, very apropos this this Smokey and the Bandit movie. Does it just say America across the top? I'll show it to you in a second. It doesn't say sport? No. Damn. No. It's, it's, it's just a map of the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Glorious. Yeah. Okay. So next time, get your trucker hats, get your, um, get your CB radios, get your, I'm just going to say Coors beer. I think that was the type. Yes, we correct. Should, we, should each, we should have a Coors beer. Yeah. We should enjoy it. We should crack open a nice Coors and see what all the fuss was about. Yeah, because it I was... I don't know if I've ever had a Coors. It was apparently unpasteurized or something, and that's yeah. why... Somehow that made it better. Yeah, and also made it highly illegal. This was a movie. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. was the plot. This was the driving force of a movie. I mean, to be fair, the, the sheriff... Uh, what was it? Buford, Buford T. T. Justice... Justice. I mean, Sally Field had just jilted his son at the altar, so he had other motives as well. But the driving force of this movie was, I will pay you X amount of dollars to haul beer across state lines yeah. for a wedding or whatever Look, it was. I mean, it, it was a different time, you know? We didn't have Amazon back then. In the 70s, no one had anything to do in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. Everyone was just hanging out. Exactly. They talk about us... Being too too connected and plugged in, we're just expected to do shit. Everyone's yeah. just hanging out in the seventies. Yeah, man, because like what Sally Field was just like hanging out on the side of the road, and the bandit just comes gets her, and then it's just like, okay, well, I'm just going to drive on with Jerry Reed and the dog in the truck and run interference against the Smokies. We'll get all into it next time, <laughs> but it is. If I, I, I remember very little about this, so I'm excited to actually be reminded what was important to America in the year of my oh, birth. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But I might have some things to say. Okay. Okay. We'll see. We'll find out the next time on Watch This Immediately. But until then, enjoy your life. Peace. Watch This Immediately.